Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is David Marin. So I go back to, I was a geophysicist, and essentially I ended up um, working in Papua New Guinea for Shell, where I, on my first day of work, had a, a, a local tribal riot where they wanted to kill me. And it was really formative because I watched one person's anger spread to everyone's simultaneously. And having survived what was a very challenging experience of like a wall of anger, four hours later, they become completely vacant. And so I viewed it as looking as a collective behavioral pattern with uh, individuals with low thresholds of individuality in a tribe. <clears throat> Obviously, the work was fascinating for three years. And then I ended up on the trading floor of JP Morgan before it climbed to its heights. And I remember looking at this trading floor thinking, as a physicist, what do I know about finance? Okay, let's look at the economists. Well, they're useless. They couldn't tell you anything that works the next day. And then some of these guys on the East End um, on the the FX desk were very capable. And I thought, that's interesting. And then suddenly it dawned on me, the same collective behavioral patterns were in that trading floor that I'd seen in the tribes. So then I thought, well, what they tell me about markets and what I think is happening are different. So as a good scientist, I started looking at price patterns and quantifying price patterns and collective behaviors. And pretty quickly, I became um, the first prop prop trader to be successful. And within a couple of years, I was asked to set up an organization that could do that for the whole bank. So for the next three years, our organization predicted markets based on price patterns in the middle of JP Morgan and went right the way to every part of the organization, all the way up to the board. And so much so that there was, I mean, it was it, it was really a, a form of technical analysis. I always think technical analysis is a little bit of the wrong word of what it really is, because it's collective behavior analysis. And essentially, it changed the way the bank took risk. And there was an article, a front cover in the time of a conch shell, and the question mark, how does JP Morgan really take risk? Anyway, so I'd promised myself to work for myself by the age of 30, and I set up my first hedge fund. And that was back in 93 when people couldn't spell the word. And I'd focused all my work ultimately to being able to do that. And I carried on managing money until 2014, and we were immensely successful. And we got some of the biggest dislocations. You know, we made about 84% in, in the 0708 downdraft. We made like 60% in the downdraft of 0102. The Argentine crisis top to bottom. You name it, we did it. And all using completely different approaches. And then briefly, in after 9-11, I thought, my goodness, this is not an accident. Having watched it and traded it successfully, I just thought this isn't an accident. This is an immune system failure of the American empire. And what if something is happening to us that's way bigger than the price history that I can extrapolate patterns from? So I thought, well, what happens if I extrapolate a pattern and I create a behavioral pattern around that pattern and then I apply it to history and look through history and will I be able to go and break down the code through these behavioral patterns? And I did. I call it the five stage of empire model, um, which I published officially in 09 in my book, Breaking the Code of History. And it basically predicted the demise of the Western world led by America, the last of the Western Christian empires, and the rise of China as the second of the Asian super empires model parts. And it's really predicted the past 15 years with an accuracy that's stunning. And so my work incorporates this top-down geopolitical, geomacro analysis of those patterns people can't see in price. 
and far more formulaic than most people ever imagine. And then I use a complex system of price modifications, which evolve back to JP Morgan, which cover every market that moves. And the net effect is I'd be able to predict just about everything that takes place in the world around us. But instead of going in 2019, instead of thinking, well, I'll go and manage money again, I came to the conclusion that actually the world was really stuffed this decade. The unless I shared my conclusions with more people and made it, tried to make a difference, doesn't matter how much money you made, we weren't going to survive as a Western society. And so I started Global Forecaster to do that, to provide the very highest level of price and information and geopolitical advice to the biggest clients in the world, the biggest hedge fund, people at the top of the hedge fund business and in the middle, and also disseminate to the public via a thing called Murray Nations, which are my geopolitical interpretations. And it's really, it, I, I didn't realize I'd also be providing a, the process of truth and analysis in a world that's become so highly distorted in what I call the doomsday bubble. So I would imagine that experience in Papua New Guinea um, is the perfect backdrop to what's the madness of COVID. Look, um, it is fascinating because the collective behavioral patterns I saw in that Papua New Guinean tribe with Augustus being the son of the chief and transmitting the first impulses of passionate anger towards me is the very same system we've seen through COVID. And so I, I was able to, in, in my book, Breaking the Code of History, um, I warned the next global pandemic pandemic would come from a Chinese laboratory as a product of an asymmetric arms race and a, bio, a, a new bioweapon. And that was back in 2009 with the conclusions I'd drawn of the way China would seek to asymmetrically challenge America's hegemony. So when it came out, on the, I was following it in late December, when the Taiwanese shut their borders, that was when we should have known it was real, the 5th of January. And I warned all my clients by the 6th or 7th, the pandemic was coming, it was real. And also the evidence that price-wise, we're at the extreme of the cycle. What's interesting is the way the Western governments responded, which was incredibly slowly. And funnily enough, that's typical of a system. It just can't see the threat coming. It responds really slowly. It's never seen it before. And we made a complete hash of that first wave interaction. Um, and that was a collective response of denial, in effect, at, at the top of a market cycle, which had a large amount of dopamine for the participants, too, until finally it became very obvious. And we've been able to basically make predictions that others haven't based on the logic of the studies that we've made. So the first was it's coming. The second in March is it will be a multi-strained pandemic with multi-waves when people were thinking that essentially it would be one. And now we've actually made the prediction that Omicron is the end. And essentially, it's it's the attenuated version. And for anyone who's not really aware of it, South African doctors are incredibly world class. When they talk about mild symptoms, mild symptoms it is. When they talk about something, they have more evidence-based medicine there than the whole of our organization and the NHS put together because I live there some of the times. And their medical profession truly impresses me. So when they say mild, when they say different symptomology, they're correct. What's interesting is what we're now seeing is the what I think is the attenuated wave which actually everyone should get because it vaccinates everyone in a sweep. And the systematic responses of, say, the British government. And that has been one of over response. We've had the lockdown brigade, as I call them, which, you know, just completely unscientific. As a physicist, mm. I cannot conceive how they think what they are doing is science. But they obviously are committed to these tight lockdown inhibition structures. And I would go back to, in, and if you take time to study, back in the time of the Spanish flu, which was for spiritual as well, 
Essentially, there was a case of a Pacific island that never received a single visitor during the course of the pandemic who contracted it. And there's a whole portion which, you know, just like people thought illness came from swamps and was actually malaria once. Mm. There is a question around transmissibility of respiratory infections. Are they more more than just the droplets of water we breathe and actually transmitted through the air over long distances? And looking at the way every measure governments have taken in different combinations, it should be very clear that the three waves that we've normally seen are continuing this time. This is the fourth cycle, the Omicron variant. So there's every chance this is the attenuated version. But the government response is the opposite. As it was slow at the beginning, it's completely exacerbated at the end. And coupled with Boris's political challenges and traumas, I think he has really decided to make this a crisis to save his political career. And he's about to be well and truly found out when in a few weeks time, all of the statistics that the doom mongers have been predicting with their inaccurate models prove to be incorrect. I think you've, I think, sorry, Paul, I'll just just finish off on this one. I, I think you've answered my question already in your last statement, but do you anticipate regime change here in the UK? Absolutely. Um, And in fact, one of my um, really great successes of using my five stages model was to predict that essentially Brexit would be Brexit and every course of it based on what I call a regional civil war where a system is reformed from we did from the 1979 lows with Thatcher's arrival. And we started and have started reascending the curve and a new cycle. And one of the hallmarks was in national energy through sport and Olympic gold medals. And the moving through those tables is a sure sign of national energy and rise. So I always viewed the Brexit process as our regional civil war. The interesting thing about civil wars is they come in waves. So they never achieve everything all at once because it's so exhausting making that change. And the change that we have made is we've moved to open water. We've left um, Europe, which by my models is implicitly going to collapse with negative demographics at the core, whatever happens. Mm. And so it's a sinking Europe. We're now into open waters. And how Boris got there is a bit sort of irrelevant, really, because I think leaders can unconsciously represent the need of the collective, and he got us to that point. What's very clear is he's unable to steer the ship in open water. His leadership qualities are completely absent. His dream that he he's like Churchill is about as, you know, connected as um, a childhood dream, really. Mm. And so what we're seeing now is the consequences of failed leadership. And on top of that, we didn't complete the transition within government so, so what would happen in a, in a bloodletting civil war is all of the left-brained enfranchised systems will be swept aside for the adapted right-brain challenge. That goes from the top to the bottom because the anti-entropy of war begats a right-brained lateral thought process. Now, we didn't kill each other, thank goodness, and we've conducted the first peaceful civil war evolutionary change in history but we haven't completed this evolutionary cycle. We have a government that's dominated by iteration at the, end of the civil service level, and we have a poor leader at the top as a version of a right brain leader without a strategic brain. And so what we will see, I think, is the iteration and rise of a new conservative leader who will expound some very powerful qualities like Thatcher. She will see the threat from Russia and China as paramount. Now, she or he, no, she probably let it out of the bag, actually. But he or she will see the threats as paramount from the outside and also cut through this system of encumbrancy with ruthlessness, because that's what the system demands, as in global Britain right now. So do you think the restrictions 
that we have in place or are being put in place will continue after the end of the pandemic? Or do you think they will have to fizzle away, but the government will attempt to try and keep them for control? Well, I think they're going to be a little bit like the man running off a cliff who for a moment thinks he's not falling. (laughs) So so. (laughs) the reality of Omicron, you know, as a a vaccinating agent in its own right, and the removal of subsequent threats is going to leave all of the lockdown brigades advocacy in deep trouble. Finally, once and for all, they've done it for the third time. And they will not be forgiven by society. So <clears throat> I think I'll sit, we should expect, <clears throat> excuse me, a very violent pendulum swing away from this current autocracy and forcing people to behave a certain way for so-called public health reasons, which I think are invalid. That's do you think great that to bad, hear. Do you think <clears throat> that big farm and bad farmer can possibly recover from the damages, the reputational damage, and the lack of trust in the sector now? You know, um, it's very interesting because on one of my marinations a couple of days ago, I published the linkages of Valance, Witty, all of the senior members that have advocated lockdown and their links to Big Pharma are deeply, you know, are really entrenched. Mm. Now, whether or not that has made a difference, I do. What I see in this process is I do not see the logic that that a double vaccination doesn't work, but you give someone a booster and it does. Because as a scientist, there's got to be an incremental curve of resistance. And and the second one is essentially the drive to basically have one booster and then another and another sounds to me like a kuching for big pharma. Mm. And I think there are now, whereas up until this moment, I wouldn't have even uttered these thoughts. Now I think we're, one of the drivers towards these extreme measures has to be the influence of the vaccine, you know, um, construct of how companies make money from it. Mm. And I certainly wouldn't, I mean, I, I think, you know, the use of fear to coerce people into actions, including children who've been coerced by their schools to have double vaccinations when their immune systems are capable, completely capable of adapting and responding far better than any vaccine can create, is, I think, truly abhorrent. One of the uh, the, the regular questions we've asked all of our guests over the last 18 months has been cock up or conspiracy without wishing to put words in your mouth i would suggest that it sounds from like from your perspective it's a combination of the two you mean the the government's pandemic response full stop yeah well it's quite interesting because i i do actually think that the country the conservatives initially were responding with the construct of herd immunity and the reason why they got bounced is because they forgot the poor old people in their homes and hadn't done enough to protect them if they protected the old people and then said herd immunity and age-appropriate restrictions on exposure, they would have been spot on. But once they got bounced in one direction, then suddenly everyone seems to think, and, and some of this isn't just to do with us. I think you've got to go back to the origins of the virus. And I've written a 72-page document, which is available on our website. And it is very clear that this virus comes from a laboratory and is a weapons-grade release. It's very clear that the Chinese, once it was released, weaponized it. And that included disabling, where possible, Western agencies that saw the threat. And at the same time, there was a part of the American agencies because of the funding via Ecobiotech that also sought to disable the communication. And the net effect is that we've just been subject to, in all probability, an attack, probably precipitated by our failure to respond to the Salisbury poisonings, which were you know, a chemical weapon and another weapon of mass destruction that in the old days we would have had to respond to, and we didn't. 
And so I think there's an awful lot of layers in this process. Mm. And I think some of the things that we might just be seeing is the over-response of control at some deep level, not at Boris's level, but deeper than that, recognizing that we've entered into the third period of weapons of mass destruction. So World War One was a chemical fear, which, you know, moved through to sarin in World War Two, never used. Then, of course, we faced the nuclear problem. And, and of course, there were civil defense programs. And now I at some level, we've created a civil defense program against something that could be so much worse, which is a positive. But the way it's done and the way it's done towards this particular issue is suffused with many other complex dynamics. Wouldn't you make they, some... Would, oh, sorry, go on, Paul. I was just going to say, wouldn't the American intelligence agencies know this, though? And wouldn't they want to respond? Well, or certainly even our own... Well, well, I, okay, so again, you can read this in my report. It's absolutely, it's very unlikely that with the way they keep tabs on weapons of mass destruction, they weren't aware of this process. And th there has to be a question around, were they actually involved in something that went wrong with the use of ecobiotech as a conduit? I mean, this mm. is a big open theory, but it would account for why they were compromised in the release of information. The information is slowly coming out as the need to polarize against China comes into society as we realize what a grave threat it is. But at the time, I think there were, that both sides suppressed the information for various degrees and, the, and they didn't want to panic the public that it was that it was a weapons grade release, accidental and then intentional, intentional, intentional. You, you make some 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 quite sweet, sweet. That's not a criticism, but some quite, quite broad statements, quite sweeping statements about things. How do you. How do you uh, try and ensure that your your macro views are not biased by, let's say, political leanings, given that obviously the price of, of securities is traded in an open market? So that's as, as dictated so, by free exchange. So, look, first of all, um, you know, I use in terms of markets, I use price recognition models, which have, I've been using for 30 years, which are very powerful. You can't make those up. You can't really bend them into shape. They stand on their own. And the other thing that's very interesting is, you know, this is a hypothesis around the origins of the Wuhan pandemic. And what is interesting about democracies is they are very, very slow to recognize covert threats. They recognize overt threats you know, easily. But China has been in a covert mode for almost two decades of undermining us. And so it's hard for us to respond, especially with the inhibitions they put in place through the World Health Organization, through, you know, through basically the Lancet, paying for people and suppressing it in our press, and also when our governments ourselves have reason to suppress the information. That doesn't make, um, make one thing work into the other because there'll be a time when people realize what's happened and price patterns will probably be well ahead of that by the time that takes place. To what extent can you um, follow the price when you may have a, as, as I think certainly I do, and I suspect Paul may may feel the same, when pr prices of themselves being manipulated by governments and central banks? Okay, so this is the interesting one: is um, I believe that governments and central banks are just a large market participant anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So they're not independent; they don't shape policy; they are part of policy, and especially in this environment, if you look at the construction of this. This really, uh, there's a thesis which I have that the five stages of empire and in decline, the empires always print money because they lose competitive and they try to use printing to, to create multiple leverage to compensate for lack of intrinsic growth. Mm. And it just keeps going and going and going until the bubble pops and it usually pops because a challenging hegemony sticks a pin in it. 
And that's exactly where America is. You know, it's China's parity as a hegemon that is now making everyone question the dollar's supremacy, its value, what's happened and where it's happened. And so in answer to your question, I think the central bank's behavior is part of the collective system's behavior, mm. not standalone. So, so your actual cycles, you say that uh, you've got a five stage model, which I'm not familiar with. Could you talk about how far back your cycles go? Do you have interlapping cycles of different types? And what are the five, five stages of that? Okay, so um, I identified five stages of empire. And this is back in 02, and I started to speak about it soon after, even though it was only published in, in 09. The first stage is regionalization, and it's driven by expanding demographics and essentially the system, which is self-organizing, essentially seeks to manifest that organization and resource itself and expand. And it gets to a point where the pyramid is so broad at the bottom and so tight at the top at the top, you usually have a, a left brain type iterative leadership, which is self-enfranchised, believes it's, you know, rather elite and doesn't do anything for the people at the bottom. An act of unfairness, an act of, you know, um, entitlement triggers the first descent. The response of the leadership to that descent only exacerbates it. And that starts what I call a regional civil war. And the English civil war was exactly that. The American civil war was exactly that. And the product of that process is a right brain leadership, which essentially is highly adaptive, highly, highly optimized for, for, for anti-entropic situations, as in they win wars and they expand effectively and they take risk. So once they finish the civil war, they run down their resource chains and they're now a fully militarized society and the system expands exponentially which is exactly what I warned would happen with China. It's not a linear expansion, it's completely exponential as a system races ahead of itself to expand in every aspect. It becomes highly creative, which I warned people about back in 2000, that the Chinese were copying and assimilating, but shifting into the innovative phase. And now lo and behold, they, they produce more patents in America proving their levels of innovation. And most importantly, that manifests in a revolution of military affairs where they find asymmetric advantage that topples the current hegemonies. So they don't try and build more of the same. They build systems which undermine the basis of the current hegemonies military dominance. And we've seen that with China. We've seen the use of area denial weapons like the DF-21 and 26, which mean the carriers can't get to Taiwan anymore. It, people don't talk about it, but Taiwan is exposed because the US Navy can't support it because of creations like that. We've seen the advent of hypersonic weapons, which was have been sputtering moments for the US Defense Forces. So that's that's all been happening in front of us. And on top of it, if you take China's case, they also managed to dupe the West into saying, if you give us money and make us capitalists, we'll be like you. And we fell for it with our sense of greed and projection that everyone wants to be like you, as we did with Iraq and as we did with Afghanistan. Essentially, this time, the Chinese built a trap, which was we gave them money. They built the biggest manufacturing base in the world. They closed everyone else's manufacturing base down because they weren't competitive. And then they turned that base into an arms race, which we can't win at this rate. So that's very typical of the, the second stage. So we're, when that is, are we in the first stage here or the second? So we're in the second stage. So we start at 2002. That's stage one. When no, no, does, no. Uh, okay. which, country, which country are we talking about? Well, any, any I'm just because <laughs> okay, obviously so, the model can be used like so, throughout history. So, the, so. It, it is. So, so yeah. it's a bit more. So, so okay. 
Okay, um, let me go back and... I, I have a bit. simple brain, so I, I need to sort of work out okay. how the so cycle's working. So first I'll show where. you the five stages, and yeah. then I'll show you where the countries are. So the, second, the, the third stage is maturity. The hegemon expands, gains territory, integrates the territory, becomes highly tolerant, has some kind of civil war at the top where the right-brained people get displaced by the more iterative left-brained, and that works because they're completely in control of their environment for a time until they start to steadily tip into overextension, where in fact their revenues on lots of different levels don't match their expenditure. And then they have a moment like 9-11 where they slip into decline, and then they really start to accelerate and lose power as the world sees that, both economically and militarily. That's the brief on the five stages. Now, the problem I found that was really quite interesting is that most of these stages were 250 to 350 years across history over 6,000 years. But when you came to Europe, something happened. The Portuguese were the first, were relatively short, then the Spanish, then the French, then the British. Germany tried twice, and then America. And they had much shorter durations. And that concerned me. And I, I looked at the idea of did technology accelerate cycles? What had changed? And then I realized that actually there was a super empire construct, which was the Christian Western super empire. And each of these elements were components within a bigger system. And that's why I described America's decline, which started in 9-11, essentially as the last of the Western Christian empires before I realized that Britain had restarted and, in fact, is the first of the new cycle for Britain and the bigger empire system for the West. Um, so that would place it as a construct. Now, as for China, China is the second Asian empire of a super Asian system, which started with Japan and China started in the Boxer Revolution. So it's got huge momentum. It's been going for a century. And when it finished its civil war in '49. Essentially, it sought to expand, and it did. And for anyone who thinks the Chinese are peaceful, look at what they did between 49 and the mid-60s, and they were taking chunks out of the countries around them. But then they reached this point where, with American power, they couldn't go any further. And by 96, in the third Taiwan Straits crisis, they realized that they were limited by the military power of America. So they sought to covertly undermine it with this strategy of seducing America to invest in its own manufacturing base. And we're now at the stage following the pandemic where they've moved from covert to a very, very overt challenge, which is why we're all so aware of it. Do you think that China can resist or even survive a what I would like to think is a, a pending development, which is a global boycott of its business? Because if we're in a covert war with China, then we really ought to stop trading with the enemy. Absolutely. And I have a campaign called Confront China, which supports that case. And I've been doing so for the past year. And it's really building momentum amongst the, you know, the people it's reached and they're spreading the word. But they're ahead of us again, because the moment the pandemic was released, they did something which I can best exemplify by what happened in 1936. In 1936, the Germans um, invaded um, the Rhinelands. And you'll realize that was a sort of demilitarized zone designed to buffer them. And it was the area through which France would come to the aid of Italy, Czechoslovakia and Poland in the event of German bad behavior. It wasn't resisted because the French had a gold crisis and didn't want a war while they had a gold crisis. So the net result is they built the Seafried Line and the Seafried Line stopped the French from reaching its allies. That's very similar to the first island chain, because now it means it's hard for America to get into the zone to support South Korea, Japan, and also Taiwan. 
But then they did something else. And if Chamberlain had known about this, he never would have gone to Berlin thinking it would be peace in his time. The, the German Nazi four-year plan committed them to a total war outcome where instead of trading with the outside world, they internalized their trade, they stored resources, and they basically had a four-year shit or bust plan where they'd either be bankrupt or at war. That's effectively taking a leaf from what Napoleon experienced when we blockaded France. Exactly. Well, and very similarly, they're both continental systems. And so essentially, with continental systems, they have limited resourcing capabilities. Whereas with if you're a global maritime paradigm, you can go and work outside the blockade and starve everyone to death. And that's exactly the same. It's a very good point. And the Chinese have a similar problem. And they've been working on how do they keep their trade routes open when constriction comes from outside, say, from America. And the Belt and Road System was the first solution. It's basically a land-based resourcing program that would keep resources flowing despite constriction by the U.S. Navy. And then secondarily, it was a power projection method, which we've seen through, you know, the use of of lending and uh, and and then taking the assets when they can't pay for them. But the first major requirement was for them to resource themselves across the whole Asian continent, which is what the Belt and Road System does. The rise of China and the fall of America is something that we've heard for many years. Um, I first heard it in the 90s and more recently more aggressively in, in certain documentaries in around 2012. And for, from that period on, nothing seems to have really changed other than there seems to be this rise of China and the decline of America. Um, is there anything that can happen to change that? And what sort of timeframes would we be looking at, um, you know, massive changes? Like, for example, um, the rise of the celebrity chef, apparently, in um, certain in in previous cycles have been an indication that you're at the end of a, of a massive cycle. Um, so we've seen that, of course, for many years. Um, but of course, when his, when you look back in history, what could amount to ten or twenty years on a three hundred and fifty year cycle is is tiny for that cycle, but it's obviously quite a long time for us. So um, one of the things is I anchored my predictions based on the Kondratiev cycle, which I'm sure you're familiar with, a 54-year yeah. cycle that Kondratiev produced. And it let me start to, in our hedge fund, buy resources in 2000 and 2001 when people weren't looking. Remember, we bought Luke Oil at, you know, what was it, 60 cents and sold it for 60 bucks. It was that sort of stuff. And so I'm, I, and I have a very complex model, not just a simple version of it, which has been frighteningly accurate. So... At the peaks of those Kondratiev cycles, the last being 75, we obviously were embodied in the Civil War or the war in Vietnam. 1914 before that, the American Civil War, there are major conflicts around those periods. And so back in you know 2005, I posited the time frame for the Chinese challenge would match the peak of the next commodity cycle, which is 2025. So this is a very immediate process. And I would argue that having seen commodities behave in the first upsurge between 2000 and 2011, the A wave, the subsequent deflationary cycle in 2020, and the first surge, which we saw from 2020 and to recently, we've now got a correction to it, which will be quite deep for reasons I'll explain to you. But after that, we are going to see commodity prices go through the roof in a way that that is really significant because if you look at the peaks at those commodity cycle prices, 75 was relatively low compared to 1914. And I would argue in 1914, two consumer-based systems were going head to head, the German Empire and the British Empire. In 1975, 
a, con- a commodity producer in the form of the USSR was going head to head with a commodity user and consumer, America, which is why at that stage, the USSR and communism seemed to be the most virulent it's ever been and almost unstoppable because its economy was supported by being a commodity producer at the peak of a, a commodity cycle and the converse for America. And of course, we know what happened at the bottom of the cycle. It couldn't afford to keep its armed forces and it went bankrupt. So I fear that this one with China will be the most vicious price move we've ever seen. And that's despite the fact that I see the bubble that was created by the Fed, which I now call the doomsday bubble, this terminal bubble designed to super compensate for lack of underlying real asset, real growth in an economy is on the cusp of bursting any time now. I think we could have even seen the high coming into Thanksgiving. In fact, I'm pretty sure we have. And once that bursts, we're going to have an asset price collapse that then collapses into a stagflationary period. And that combination is going to be hell for the Western economies to survive and recover from. And and so that's all. Is that all post twenty five, or are you saying yeah, pre? It's pre twenty five. Pre twenty five. So the how, asset how price. How can we have a commodity price boom in that environment? The simple process of the of the sheer competition for resources between you know a, 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 literally a, a Western system at the bottom of its sort of economic cycle and the demand from China. China already takes something like 60, 50 to seventy percent of all commodities. And it will be forced to stockpile on an epic scale because it still can't guarantee it has control of the oceans. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right um, about the oceans. Um, so um, so you so you're saying with regard to these cycles, does the political cycle uh, infer the market cycle or is it vice versa? Because, you know, that, that is such an interesting question. And, and I think the cycle, the five stages of empire cycle is a powerful, big observation of social organization. It, so I was able to predict that the debt in the US would just keep going. The reason why Britons didn't keep going is because after Suez, we handed the baton to America and our cousins took over the world with a similar value set. But America doesn't have another cousin to pass it to of equal power. So it's just going to keep printing until it's caught out. And I think we're here. Mm. And we're here at that traditional stage of the hegemonic challenge. So in that respect, there is coincidence. But I use much, much shorter time frames really to predict trades. I mean, I, I use a telescope process whereby I get very tight entry points by using fractal models. And I see to go and get entry points and then cascade. An example would be a Turkish lira trade we put on this year has made 70 times the initial risk by risking, you know, 10 pips and, you know, 70 later, you're up or 700 later to be precise. So I use a, a multi-time frame telescope to precisely time my entry points and be in line with a wave so you can surf down it. So if it's wave theory, it sounds a bit, and you said the A wave before, so I yep. wanted to ask you about it's, that. It sounds very much like a, Elliott wave theory. Which it's is essentially, based... it's it's a, it's a derivative of Elliott wave, yeah. So it's your own, it's... oh right, so this is your own proprietary version of Elliott wave theory, effectively. Yes. So yeah, well, it, yeah. the, the five stages of empire isn't, but mm. the price models we use to interpret a market is. Oh, that's really interesting. So yeah. how, how did you, oh, sorry. How did I get into Elliott wave? Well, no, no. I, 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 I mean, it's quite easy. If you're involved in the markets, you would, that's a, a natural sort of step. But getting involved with Elliott wave, understanding it, and then actually developing your own form of Elliott wave is, is, that's that last bit is the most interesting part. What did you think needed to change in it and how did you improve it? And do you also 
uh, teach other people your own method of analysis? Um, well, so I would say that my I use a I, I'm always fascinated by if you look at most scientific evolutions and developments, they they evolve iteratively. You have an idea, you make it better, and there you go. If you look at Elliot's work, this complex pattern recognition system just turned up mm. in a short period of time, and I, I really ask the question about where it came from. You know, I just don't think someone suddenly has a light bulb that complex and that complete. Now, if you look at his original work and and you know and where it's used right now or where I use it, the basic rule construct has never been broken. But within it, there are different ways that waves can look. And they look different even though they are the same when you apply it. And that's where the, in having done it now since I was 25, so that puts me into the almost 40 year category. Is that right? No, 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 35 year category. And I'm right, and I'm right brained and I'm visual. So you need to have a pattern recognition system. Mm. So I've been doing it for a long time. And what really got me going actually was fascinating was I looked at every form of price analysis and some were good, some weren't. And, um, and over in uh, JP Morgan in New York, we had a guy called Drew Baptiste, who's a great friend. And his father had been a wave counter himself and made a fortune in the gold cycle. And I, I watched his work for a time and thought, hey, it's just really weird. I mean, just. And then I read Elliot's, no, or Prechter and Frost's 90 page on wave counting. And as a physicist, I looked at it and thought, that's a perfect fractal model. That really makes sense to me. And very quickly, it became a usable way of operating and has done ever since. What I think people often don't do is look at, say, if you look at every dollar pair, you will see a range of wave counts across the pairs. And how those ranges of wave counts work also gives you information rather than just singly focusing on one market. So the divergence tells you something and alignment tells you something. So there's a lot more information by treating all of the separate macro markets as part of a holographic three-dimensional construct and using wave counts within that. So it's part of the books that you've authored and from what i can see there are six is one of those teaching people your method no, no it isn't okay i my I, I i for my clients who subscribe everything i do is explained to them so i'm very open about how i how i use this knowledge and in fact you know the recommendations are specific entry point size stops and then you know how you run them i treat it like i'm running a portfolio and people can just tap into that portfolio as they see fit and the results are always produced every quarter so you can see whether they're good or bad and actually they're pretty spectacular across all the sections some of them have been amazing and with the um sorry tim i i i, I was leaving a gap for a question for you if you wanted to <laughs> no don't worry, don't worry. Okay. Go, go go for it i, I was gonna, I, i'm curious about the rise of ai and whether it that is um, any part of your uh, analysis well, now? You, or, or, you, you, yeah. you, that's such a great question, you know, because I sat there, you know, in the in, in the late eighties and the nineties, thinking, shit, one day, you know, algorithmic observation is going to basically make me redundant with my pattern analysis. Mm. And what has really fascinated me is those patterns are just as clear now as they were then. So why is it when we know there are far more trading systems around? Well. I would answer that you have an underlying unconscious behavioral pattern which produces a first degree price pattern and AI recognizes that pattern and then reinforces it. So it doesn't dampen it, it actually reinforces it. 
So I think that's the answer, is AI is using a derivative of pattern recognition of the fundamental human collective behavioural pattern. But it isn't the essence of this, essentially, that human nature simply doesn't change very much over well, time. It really is. In fact, funnily enough, you know, my the reason why I wrote Breaking the Code of History was to try and allow us to realise how we repeat our cycles. And key to those cycles are the way we use conflict to evolve. So um, I, I would say that, you know, we create social structures because they're anti-entropic. Collectively, we try and order the world around us. And each civilization empire cycle that I look at takes anti-entropy to a new level. So it's a bit like a curve that goes upwards with a sinusoidal wave on it. And at the intersection point of an old system being brushed aside by a new system, we use warfare to basically decide which system has the most anti-entropy to resist or fail in that conflict. And it's been part of our development, which is exactly why we all say, God, I don't want to go to war, but we keep going to war because mm. it's an intrinsic system. And so I've tried to explain to people that that system has worked so far and we have to own up to using it. But we're going to come to a point where our weapons are so much more destructive than our consciousness and its use that the system of our evolution will be our undoing. And I think that as we run into this challenge with China versus the West, this is the moment when if we do that, if we don't learn from the lessons of creating effective deterrence, we won't be here. Yeah, and China is, China is particularly unique because with 55% males, that's 4% more than a normal society would have to go to war. It has the equivalent of 55 million extra men in risk capital of the system's recognition of the risks it will take to expand. There's... um. Uh, maybe later on we we will uh, move well we will move over to MediaPix a bit later on but one of the ones that I absolutely love is um, Black Mirror and Black Mirror has this episode which is a dystopian future where you have effectively these uh, robot attack dogs and um, people are being chased down with them it's uh, we're at the point where AI bots are you know, it's it's not science fiction. It's science fact. They are there. They can be deployed. It is a worrying situation as to how that will be handled and um, dealt with going forward, especially if there's more tension between countries geopolitically, because you can't not develop this stuff because your neighbor does. It's the same with, you know, nuclear weapons. But the technology is definitely there at the moment. Um, and it is uh, it's pretty powerful stuff. Uh, and you wrote, you touched on a really interesting issue. What happens when the singularity occurs? And um, because it is going to happen without doubt. And and I think that, you know, if you go and look at the Terminator films, which we all enjoy for various reasons, the reality is that, you know, an arms race or the presence of arms in an arms race and then, you know, an AI program that's meant to do a job better ends civilization as we know it. And I think there's a real risk of that because the description that I described earlier of the way we use cycles and warfare to evolve through challenge would look to a machine a very destructive process and self-destructive as well. And also naturally conclude that they might be the target of it at some stage. So I think that we are in the run up to this sort of peak of the commodity cycle, accelerated arms race. The use of AI and, the, the, as you say, the overlap of physical kinetic weapons in our physical space is increasing the, the threat of that reality. Do you think there's a possibility that the nation state itself fails to survive this current crisis? Um, no, I don't. I, I think 
you know, it's a question of which nation. Is it the CCP with their autocracy and the removal of democracy? Or is it basically, you know, a, a free system? The biggest issue we've got, and we've always had ever since Sparta and Athens went head to head, the concept of a broader base enfranchised democracy of some kind versus autocracy or kingship or emperorship. And we're still struggling with that as a race is what is the optimum? And I would argue that if you put a system person to person, as in you took 100 people and you said, OK, so choose a democratic system or choose the autocratic system. Well, I think democracy optimizes those 100 people more successfully. The problem we face is we face the biggest populace in the world. Mm. And so by sheer numbers, even if they're operating at 50 percent the efficiency of an individual in democracy, they could still swamp us. And mm. especially because we're in decline and our social coherence is low. But I mean, that's a human struggle that we're still going through. And until we really resolve that process and conflict, we're going to keep being caught in the cycle. What's the typical time frame for one of your market predictions? Uh, well, I would say, we take, for example, the Turkish lira. You would get an email on the said day to buy it at, what was it, um, 6.91, and you put a stop in at 6.81, and that was about five, six months ago, and we took the profit on it yesterday. Um, so when trends are big like that, with short entry points, we will telescope them out as long as the risk rewards look great. In the, just in the period of the panic, I think we sold the FTSE right at the high and we made 70 times in the drop um, and there was a stop profit on it. Um, so essentially, that's the sort of thing we're talking about. Sometimes it can be there quickly, sometimes not. As long as the evidence that you're in the pattern that you think you're in is there, I'll keep moving it. What, is there anything at the moment that's caught your eye or the market? Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think there, I think the, the, the fascinating one was, um, so I think it's always good to talk about what you do well. It's also good to talk about what you don't do so well. And I will, I'll say that um, having picked the high in the equity market, you know, and the drop that went with um, the pandemic's arrival in February, um, I expected it to be a drop, a correction, and then another major drop. So I call it phase one, phase two, and phase three, ABC, however you want to view it. I did not anticipate the amount of financial intervention America would produce to turn its B wave into a primary impulse wave. Interestingly, in Europe, they're all corrective. So when you look at sectors, Europe's correction marginally makes a new high. In the case of FTSE, doesn't get up there. It's stalled around here. And I think we're at the entry point for all of those big shorts. What was interesting about the Nasdaq, which is the most bullish of all of them, essentially about a few months ago, I looked and thought the only thing that can be this is a fifth wave extension. In Elliott terms, it's when every wave gets more and more extended as you come to the end. They're so rare, but they are exactly what create the biggest bubbles. And there's a calculation you can make. And I made the calculation when we we're back at sort of one five treble O that we would get to 60, um, 67, 40. And we got to 67.45 and reversed after completing the cycle, which gives me confidence that this is a major turning point. Now, what's also interesting is when you look at the four indices, you look at the NASDAQ, you look at the S&P, then you're going to look at the Dow Jones, and then you look at the Russell 2000. The Russell 2000 has clearly finished five waves, and it's made a teeny little thrust up in the fifth wave, super weak. And all the, the top 20 shares in the Russell have blown their brains out long ago because we've tracked and, and sold them individually. Then if you go and look at the Dow Jones, that's a pretty weak chap. 
And the NASDAQ is actually now giving up more time, more space to the downside than relative to the S&P. So that picture looks really good, while Europe looks like it's rolling over very nicely. And in Asia, it's already long since rolled over. And people forget that. And the reason why I think that we're seeing what we saw is, so you, you asked about the Chinese economy. And I think that after the pandemic was released, she put into place the Nazi four-year plan, internalized the whole process. They no longer think of themselves as an exporting society. I think the supply chain constrictions, some of them originate back in China because they have now turned inwards. They knew that one day we'd find out what they had done to them. And at the same time, they were knew they were going to become overtly aggressive and trigger that secondary response and shut them out. So they started, they're, they're a year ahead of us already. They've been stockpiling like crazy in the first phase of the commodity cycle. And essentially, I think they're prepared for that process of an internally fueled consumer society. And they've taken a risk in the gap because it wasn't a complete closed. They had to leap for it and they're filling the gap with arms production. So I think they've already done it. They're prepared for it. What's your perspective on gold at the moment? Oh, sorry, just to, before I answer that one. And sure. so I was just so people I mean, we've been watching the collapse of the internal system within the capital system within China. It's because they don't need the social camouflage anymore to invite any more investment. That's done now. So anyone who's got their fingers stuck in China is going to have them cut off very, very precipitously. And that's also why their stock markets have been so weak. Sorry, just to finish. So, so sure. I, I, I think gold and the silver are the only safe havens to be found in this situation with, you know, systematic inflation and a shift of power that is really going to be unpleasant. We're, we're always subject to that memory of the risk off moment when equities mm. dived and gold and silver dived before they recovered. Mm. And, you know, but I think we're this correction is a lateral correction. So I, I would put my money on being long already, not, you know, worrying about the downdraft taking me out. But I've, I've always, sorry to interrupt, I've always felt that the, the immediate sell-off in precious metals during market broader base sell-offs is because they act as ATM machines. So That's exactly yeah. right. It is exactly right. <laughs> uh, and it's a very good description. It's really like, what can I sell? And so, then finally, people realize, well, actually, that's not a good idea. The thing that's maybe a little different in this oncoming sell-off is you're looking at systematic inflation, mm. whereas in 2020, inflation was non-existent or perceived to be. It does look like we're going to see one last final move to the downside, given the way platinum and palladium are, are trading, that um, gold and silver may may make a new low before it goes up. But then there will be, or should be, a very strong upward phase coming, which is uh, um, something to look forward to for 2022. But obviously, you know, there, there, no, nobody knows, ex you know, for sure, but that's kind of how it looks. Mm. Um, what, what's your prediction um, on the euro? Do you think it will survive or? Uh, look, um, um, how it trades versus the dollar is separate from the survival of the, the EU construct. Yeah. I don't think the EU construct is going to survive. Um, I, I th you know, There's a whole piece I wrote about. The irony of the EU is that it became the, the empire that Germany always coveted and tried to achieve through two wars. And it did it surreptitiously after the collapse of the wall. And if you look at the Lisbon Treaty, it was the overt extraction of power from everyone else back to Germany. And, you know, much as we remember Merkel or the Germans, I just can't believe she's remembered pleasantly at all because she accelerated the collapse of the whole system for Germany, which was also in decline, too. 
and Germany now is well and truly in terminal decline. It has no um, technological advantage over the Far East to export anymore. Um, it hides, so so you know, the, the, the benefits of the euro are, are different. I just can't see anything good happening to Europe. Well, I find I think, staggering about some of these developments, and, and Germany is a case in point, is that it's it's as if the West is almost deliberately committing economic suicide. Well, I mean, what's interesting about these patterns is it doesn't deliberately do anything. They just we're so unconscious, we just do it. And the protectionism of the EU is so so what would have happened, imagine if Germany, if America hadn't had the nuclear umbrella post-war over Europe, Europe would have been subsumed by the USSR. It could never have stood alone. And so what happened with the creation of the nuclear umbrella is something that was, you know, had a little bit of growth left because Germany was still young, even in 45, rebuilt itself, ended all its energy with the digestion of East Germany, and then just ran out of steam. And once it ran out of steam, everyone around it ran out of steam. So the whole system is just, it is, it is almost like a long-term slow death. And they do not understand that you, you only create economic success through competitiveness, and they've created greater protectionism than America as a result of trying to hold on, which is why Britain had to leave, because our energy is vibrant and expansive. And we'd either go down with them and drag down by the Titanic or stand alone. And I think our role as a separate entity compared to America in decline and the EU is very important because we will act as the pole for those systems still able to stand up to reagglomerate around us. So you mentioned that you look at virtually every market. Obviously, that's not something that an individual can handle on their own, um, especially in, with the depth of knowledge that you, you're displaying here. Um, do you have a team behind you or are the signals automated to help you look at uh, lots of different markets at once? You ready for the shock answer? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you do it all on your own, but it's your, it's your, it's your cat. <laughs> no, I, I do actually. Um, and, um, it's taken a long time to be able to really process so many inputs effectively. And interestingly enough, when as a CIO, you're always so busy called upon by your risk takers and everyone else. And what, what I really enjoyed when I constructed my global forecaster model was I created a really disciplined process of channeling ideas, making them available. And when you make them available, you sort of crystallize them and storing them. And it's actually it's exceeded any of my previous methods of mapping the world simultaneously. And, I, and the funny thing about it, and you're going you're gonna to laugh about this, is that um, I remember uh, Soros offered us money to manage back in the 90s and uh, rang up and said, you know, we'd like to give you a couple of million. And I remember saying, um, yeah, great. Well, what are the fees? And they were half a percent. And I said, I'm really sorry, but we can't accept that from you because why would we take half a percent when we're the best fund in the world? And essentially, you'll just take the others. Mm. And they kept bringing us up saying no one's ever refused us before. Are you sure you don't want to change your mind? And in the process, I met Nick Riditi and Nick Riditi oh, managed... Yeah billions in Hampstead and Hampshire on his own. And I remember looking and thinking, how do you do how do you do that? And then now I understand, right? I live a relatively isolated. I don't speak to many people. Everything that I see, I use my systems for rather than rely on other people. And once one has enough confidence to do that, it's quite remarkable how objective that your objectivity is multiplied. It's really fascinating. And I, and honestly, and this isn't just meant to be, but I'm being honest, I never thought I would take 
that art form I've studied for 35 years to this level to enable me, as you say, to cover so many things simultaneously and to generally see that picture work with specific trades. So do you code? No. You don't? Okay. So, I mean, no. so I, 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 wow, I, I'm just, I have this image of, uh, of what well, must be Excel spreadsheets then of, of, of data or or just looking at chart. I mean, I know from my own analysis, technical analysis of of, of markets, either it ta- it takes a long time to to analyze. Well, actually, I say that. I mean, looking at a chart doesn't take very long, but actually writing about it is what takes long. So well, you either have time to write or you have time to to well, look at charts. And doing both on your own well, is, is tricky. You, you're right about one thing. I was on holiday last week, and I went off for a week. I don't. You know, I haven't been away for quite a while. And coming back is like spinning up a gyro. Yeah. And that's when you when I appreciate just how much is going on in my mind in the calculation process. Yeah. And that gyro gets spun up and then it's off again. But the gap between unspun and spun up shows how much it takes. I I mean I I'm that's I use every, every every market I have I have a current wave count for. Mm. And that means every group of markets have a subset of wave counts. And the hardest thing is the time it took to go and spin all those up because there's you know roughly 80 macro markets and I show I look at 200 shares. And so essentially that took time. But once and if you're if you make bad pattern recognitions, you have to constantly adjust them. But the more accurate your pattern recognition is, the least the less you have to adjust them. And that's got to be the secret. Yeah. If I was doing this in, in year five of my career, I couldn't dream of doing it because I'd constantly be correcting it because it would have been wrong. I Whereas see. its consistency is lowering the workload, if that makes sense. Do you use Fibonacci projections? Yeah, well, they're, 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 they're one of the harmonics linked to waveforms. Yeah. I've, so, you know, yes, you know, I'm always aware of them in my wave structure. In fact, it's got to the stage where I don't even have to put them on. I just, my visual pattern recognition has a very good idea of where they are, if that makes sense. Yeah. So would you be looking, I mean, I'm thinking of the um, the, the, the cycle trader, um, Martin Armstrong, and he has his Nostradamus system, which... Um, from what I've heard, it's slightly contentious things about, um, but you know, I, I have no information other than what's available. Um, I, I, I would there be a um, any interest in the future in creating some automated model of of what you've you, what you've created manually? I would love to actually. Mm. I really would because you know I, I would like because you probably noticed I decided to make my work available. Yeah, with the simple belief that. You know, if someone is accurate at predicting markets, then they say, what else are you accurate at? Oh, well, you know, how did you predict every step of Brexit? Or how have you predicted every election result in the UK and the US for 20 years? They start to ask those questions remarkably slowly, I might add. And I think the reason why we live in a world where people aren't asking the appropriate questions is because the product of the Fed super bubble is everyone just assumes as a backstop. And because the trend has been so sustained, it's removed the alpha generators and replaced them with a group of beta generators who really aren't equipped for change. When change comes, I think there'll be a massive leap of mindset of people saying, well, who has answers and how do you do it? And so I've made my work available to my clients, especially. Have the political bookies stopped taking your bets? 
<laughs> I always express my bets more in the market, to be honest. But, you know, again, I sort of record them. So they're all we're all recorded as to what would happen. It was obvious Trump would win. It was obvious that Biden would win, all because of the way that social dynamics swing between make me great again because Obama's trashed the country to essentially, whoops, you know, the disproportionate of the poor versus the wealthy has changed so much that it had to be a wealth distribution system that replaced him. So there are just it's really interesting because, you know, for years sat and listened to people who made fundamental analysis and none of it really made sense or was predictive. But once I ordered the information in a different way in, in this code of history, it's been the most remarkable experience. I, I had no idea I would walk and come across something so profoundly predictive. Do you think one day you will bring all these ideas into one book so a so the next generation can can learn this form of analysis well well breaking the code of history is essentially pretty much complete i've i've and it's very interesting actually uh you if you ask me a question about another recent book i'd say how similar it is hmm. um in the public domain from um, a large hedge fund manager in america in fact it's remarkably similar so uh, one of the things that I was aware of when I put it into the marketplace is I wanted to see change. And you know, that was the most important thing, as that great phrase Reagan said, it's amazing what you can choose if you don't, if you don't want the credit. Um, but yes, it, I, I seek to put my knowledge and make it available, which is why I speak openly. There's a lot of information on my website in the constructs of social theories, how they operate, how I think the way I do. I've tried to make that very open. And certainly with my client base, I will answer any question I can. And my goal is to give them the information to make them more effective. Is Trump coming back? Do you think? No. You don't think no. so? I, th I, think, I think where we are right now is a true crisis. America faces civil war, the fracture of the two sides, or it requires a leader to bond both sides against China. Now, the impending threat of China may do that to some degree naturally. But the only hope that America has of standing against China is not the Democrats. It's that the Republicans start to enact change within their own party well before the election and put pressure on the Democrats to do that beforehand. So I think I think we will see a revolution in the Republican Party that ejects him and we'll see a replacement with some kind of military background. It'll be a younger man with a defined military capability that rises to the Republican Party's heights is, is what I suspect. Fascinating. Tim, any any further questions? Any not not market related. No, we've covered so much territory so quickly. It's been like we've been swimming at a thousand miles an hour. Oh, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, well, I've, sl I've slowed down initially. I think I was on steroids. So I've <laughs> slowed down the recording to make me sound a little less manic. Oh no, not at all. It was it was perfect. Um, is there anything that you would like to talk about that we haven't asked you? Yeah, look, uh, there are a couple of things. Um, so you mentioned you know, what books, the things that I've written about that people might be interested in. Breaking the code of history is is really, all of that information is there and, and it's become even more popular because it predicted the past decade and a half accurately and it's still as pertinent now as it was. So that gets an awful lot of responses. I wrote a book called um, Lions Led by Lions, which seems like an abstract topic. And it's basically about how the British Expeditionary Force won World War One. And instead of being led by donkeys, 
Haig and his staff were lions. And the evidence came by forensically looking at the Battle of Amiens and looking at how a system had basically evolved to fight a battle like that and then win the next 96 days sequentially in a series of equal sized battles. And with it, I draw some conclusions about the, the reconstruction of the British Army required and the evolution of it, and also the lessons of how Britain failed to deter Germany and allude to Lloyd George's role as a liberal, which undermined the immune system response of Britain to Germany at really critical times. That's an interesting book in itself, and also because the parallels between the challenge of China to America and the challenge of Germany to Britain in 1914 are almost 95%. They're so, very pertinent lessons. I mean, obviously you have a an amazing grasp of, of history and going back you know, much further than just recent history. If somebody's reading the breaking the code of history, um, you know, a lot of what you're talking about here, uh, it seems to be subjective and, and it's come from all of your, your knowledge. Um, would they be able to make their own predictions after having read this book? Yes, that that's is what that I've really one? tried to give them is the algorithm and uh -huh. how the algorithm works. It can apply to the fractal of their own life, to companies, to organizations, mm. all of them. And, and that's exactly what I hope to do is by giving examples and the, the, the basic template, people would start thinking this way. And by thinking this way, it would ultimately change the way we collectively behaved. So if they were dipping their toe into uh, the world of your forecasts, Mar Marination's Insights I'm seeing from your website, would that be the first place to start? Would yes, you? yes. So, so, so the, the way I've set it up is Marination's Insights are really investment grade insights and predictions into the geopolitics of the world around. It's priced for the private individual at £40 a month because I wanted that information to spread far and wide. But that pricing actually is not representative of what it would represent to an investor because it gives heads up and processes as to some very big changes when they come along. When those ideas are integrated, the next level is I have um, a thing called Arkham Scenarios, and it's a, it's a really... The street, it looks at all of the big five macro groups, it looks at what they're doing individually, how they collectively relate, and the geopolitics that affects the market specifically. And so that's, if I was sitting with you to strategize on how we're going to manage our fund, where we're going to be, what the opportunities are, when to act, that's what that is. And then stacked on top of that is essentially individual markets with specific recommendations that arrive real time via the internet to tell you to do something specifically. And so, and that it goes further because there is a portion for the macro world and then for the equity hedge funds, there's a whole portion of equities too that does the same thing. And that can be found at davidmurin.com. That's M-U-R-R. Oh, sorry, .co.uk. So yeah, it's, Roger that. That's yeah. at the website. Yeah, and there's an awful, there's information in terms of theories we've talked about. There's main the and the, the theory of collective human organization and anti-entropy is really a piece I've added since breaking the code of history, and it explains why we create social systems, not just and the so the social systems are a product of our survival system and the limitations of the choices we've made and the ones ahead of us. So when when you when you're making a forecast and it starts to go wrong, what what tells you what tells you that you've got that wrong? Is it just the price action's not behaving the way you expect, or um, could it be that the political situation seems to n not be uh, playing out again in the same way, and and therefore perhaps so, you're at a, di a different point and you have to recalibrate? 
So um, in terms of trade recommendations, I respect my trades. So I've learned not to second guess entry points. If I enter a trade and if I have a stop, I let the stop deal with being wrong. Right. I don't try and second guess it because if you get into that mode, you'll, you'll actually usually nail some of your most profitable trades. So I've long since learned that once I execute a trade, and that's why I'll, I'll send out a trade recommendation. And if it's taken out, I don't send any other. It just I need to do another one, and you can see the stop price. In terms of a sequence of trades which have gone wrong, something which doesn't quite feel right, or I've got my mind in the wrong place, that requires a rethink. And sometimes that can be the bigger picture. Sometimes it can be, why have I misinterpreted something? Why am I early? So, you know, the way that I'm wrong is I'm wrong because I'm a sniper that fires three shots with tight entry points looking for 10 times this reward. And if I lose three times and I start thinking something going wrong there. Mm. And it was very interesting because in the equity phases, um, so I managed to sell most of the peaks of all the equity cycles in the past year. In Europe, that made me that actually let me make money. In the US, it lost money, but relatively small amounts compared to what I'll make when the thing breaks to the downside. So think of it like a ratchet risk system. Even if I'm wrong, the ratchet works very well. Would it be fair to say that you agree with the thesis that we are close to or at the point of peak passive? Um, I would say that's 110% correct. <laughs> well, I'll take that. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, what we've seen is the bubble is a product of the Fed's defensive system. And it's quite interesting because bubbles create dopamine and dopamine makes everyone dozy and happy. Mm. And at the same time, I think we're probably seeing, you know, bu bubbles like this, like, you know, 29 are, are absolutely um, linked to loss of moral construct because money is everything people mm. make money they become arrogant they think they're above the law all of the things which create social sort of swings in the wrong direction are present in american society right now and the dopamine prevents america from recognizing china or any other threat so the defense second mechanism the fed created has actually got an own goal it's put the country to sleep now the moment it rolls over the top and the cortisone starts flowing you will find america firing off against just about any threat because this is going to be such a bad decline. And I cannot see anything but a market dislocation with everyone one way around. I'm channeling Betty Davis. Uh, fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> Good old Betty. <laughs> I think I think it's going to be, I think it'll be very, very bumpy. And of course, everyone's had it ingrained that you never, ever sell a low because the Fed will come and save you. So, you know, they're literally going to have a one way ride to zero. And at the same time, if bonds go down because there's a debt crisis and and the dollar goes down all at once, which is sort of how I think this will play out when mm. they all fully align, there will be no safe haven apart from precious metals. Mm. Is um, uh, or, or potentially, is Bitcoin the future of money or the future of misery? You you read my mind. I was about to wonder <laughs> whether you're going to answer that, right? Um, so, okay, big picture. I'm wary that blockchain can be beaten by quantum computers. So I see this as a short-term plug in a world where the hegemonic currency is obviously in decline and no one knows what comes next. And it is also an aspect of this printing of money and this risk, you know, openness. Now, um, when Bitcoin was up at 68 and everyone was jumping up and down, I made the determination that we were still in the fourth wave. It was a B wave and I went short. And what was interesting was 
a number of um, um, sentiment indicators had people thinking it was going to 250 and everyone was bullish. And there's two places they're bullish. They're bullish at the end of a big B wave or they're bullish at the end of a fifth wave. And that trade looks good to me. I think we're going to get to sub 30K, could get down as far as 20. And then I could see it acting as a safe haven up to 100. But there's a lot of blood to flow, I think, in the initial stages before that point is reached. But beyond beyond that, do you think um, it will actually be more widely accepted or do you think there'll be a new technology that will take over? Look, I think, you know, in the gap of what do you do without the dollars, we'll be trying lots of stuff. Mm. I'm not sure. The biggest issue is, is blockchain able to resist a quantum computer? And if it does, then yes, it will become sustainable. And if it doesn't, it will ultimately collapse too. It was interesting because I was thinking exactly that. And we talked about this on the podcast a few years ago about quantum computings and uh, com computers actually managing to break the technology. But from from people that I've asked about this very question, they've said that it can adapt to it. So um, I don't know. We shall see. I don't know enough about quantum computing and to, to say that definitively. But that question potentially is something that the code can be uh, rewritten uh, to make uh, it... Uh, I, I, I'm, I've heard that too. And mm. as a physicist, with my you know, ancient physicist hat on, the only... So if you look at quantum technologies, you've got quantum computing, quantum sensing, which, by the way, I think will bring the end of submarine you know, dark and silent. What, because what's you what's sensing? Sense. What's so quantum? Sense, quantum sensing is the ability to sense. So, so a quantum mass sensor could look you across the room and watch you eat a raisin and see your mass change. Oh. It's the ability. It's the ability to detect mass very effectively, and mass, and 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 so gravimetrics and um, um, magnetic detection were tried in the Second World War for submarines. But the obvious application is submarines underwater have a different mass from the seawater they displace. So I've often thought that is a very dangerous technology for the balance of power. The Chinese have really focused on quantum communication, and quantum communication is the idea that that you receive a quanta packet. And that basically, if my quanta packet that I split yours from is disturbed, then the information disappears and you can't. So no one can get it. When you open a quanta of communication, it has not been tampered. with. Mm. And the only way I can see blockchain surviving a computer, that's a quantum computer, is something similar where it becomes, you know, a quantum communication. And I haven't seen any evidence of how you physically do that. Mm. Interesting. So given that you're so busy... Um, how do you kick back? What's um, we ha we have a, an end of our section where we look at like media picks, which can be anything from, you know, a book, a film, or it doesn't have to be market related, but it can be. Um, but um, we like to just share things that we think are either really good or potentially okay. avoid. But most people pick things that they really like. What What do you like to to do to to so, kick so back? I, I, lo I love film. I mean, just you know, on a weekly basis. I love film and I love the role of film within these waves of society. So I enjoy the visual experience. I love the you know, the message that's transmitted through the film, which is resonant with the system around me. And I get completely engrossed in them. So and I really like science fiction films, especially. But, you know, anything that challenges the mind and takes one out. So that's one thing. I exercise a lot. So I swim and I weight train. But I'm truly a passionate sailor. I have a, a beautiful old classic boat, which I race really competitively. 
Um, and um, I started the, with a friend, the British Classic Yacht Club of Great Britain 20 years ago, which is now a very vibrant medium. And last weekend, last week, I, I managed to get away to Barbados. And I did the thing that truly, if I just think of one thing that individually truly just blows my sense of well-being, it's kite surfing. And uh, we found a beach that was a, about a mile long, no one else on it, got a local instructor to take go come down to make sure he was a safety. And going out into this this azure water, although it was very rough and I was a bit rusty. And after three or four days, you know, going back into my fluid kite surfing, I was just I, I'm still high on it. And um, so my passion for markets and my passion for my work is a passion expressed in everything else. Um, I really I think life is a treasured, exciting experience, full of joy, excitement. And as we get older, we've got to remember to challenge ourselves and be scared because fear is part of the growth of youth. And I think that's exactly what we don't do when we're older. That kite so, surfing looks fun, but I bet it, I bet it was scary the first time. <laughs> well, you know, it's quite kind of interesting because, you know, I'm a big, big chap. So there I am with my 15 meter and you, you train with a 10. And when I first started, no one explained what you did. And this 15 meter kite, if you drop it in what's called a power zone, you become a human projectile. And when I was learning 15 years ago, you know, there were four or five people a year who managed to catapult themselves into buses or into rotor blades of helicopters Shit. and really horrendous demises. So it's it's fine as long as you're taught, especially around that power zone and what it can do to you. Um, and, and it is like mastering something that is exceptionally, you know, it can do you harm if you do it wrong, do it right. It's phenomenal. Amazing. Um, and the last and the last piece of the puzzle is I've always studied Chinese martial arts or Japanese initially Chinese. So, you know, I still I've been doing Tai Chi for a long time. So, um, you know, when I feel particularly traumatized by the experience of life, I always try and find a calm spot and just, you know, enact a, a sequence which um, neurologically returns me to a, to a more stable state. Is meditation part of that or is it well, well, or does it have quite, the same effect? Well, it's yeah, very interesting you say that because I've you know in my journey I studied you know the the other Indian books of yoga, including meditation and displacement and things, and then karate, which teaches you how to meditate or close your eyes and calm your mind, and Tai Chi is really calmness in movement. It does the same effect. In some ways, I think it's more profound because it has a neurological set of triggers, and so if you go back and we're all familiar with the ninja. And, you know, the, the ninja were the non-Bushido warriors within Japanese culture that could do things outside the boundaries of society and stab people in the back when they weren't looking. And they were very famous for having a neurological code that they would enact in their fingers. So a bit like you tap the palm of your hand or you put your thumb inwards. And by using these neurological hand signals, they quickly shade, shifted their modes into calmness, into speed, into you know, the human, the 32 human modes. So that neurological trigger between the body and the mind, I think, is deeply profound and and and, I, and realistic, too, that you draw on the energy from the earth that gives you root and stability is part of the internal Chinese martial arts, which derive from their Taoist origins. Fascinating. So, um, Tim, do you do you have a, a media pick for this week? Well, follow that. Thanks, Sir David. Uh, put, put, me, put me on the spot. Um, I've got I've got three three brief ones. So um, David's already highlighted the Terminator franchise. I'm going to reiterate my love of a film from the 80s called War Games, which covers some of the same kind of territory. 
uh, with Matthew Broderick, which I think is a great I family remember film. That. Yes, I remember. I'm old enough to remember that. How how about a nice game of chess? Um, Terminator so, Two was the only good one, though, wasn't it? Well, well, Terminator and Terminator Two are both are both good. But uh, so um, I'll give that a quick plug. Um, I've been thoroughly enjoying Succession. Just finished the second series of Succession, and because I also have a sense of humour, there is a great. Very brief, it's only three minutes long, but a great parody of Succession by an American comedian called Brent Peller. Oh, so got we'll see it in that. the show notes, but it's a Brent Peller parody of Succession, which is just hilarious, um, which is predicated just on going out for some tacos uh, <laughs> and negotiating going out for some tacos. And it's just hilarious. <laughs> and the the third, and I, I hope Paul will indulge me. I'll hope the listeners will. will. I, I'll let this you have is, it all this week. This is a no, no, no. I say this is a plug for one of our own creations. So uh, people may or may not realise that Paul and I uh, have been putting out some um, COVID protest songs and videos. And the most recent one we've done, which we've just put on um, YouTube, is uh, with the excellent Trevor Locke, and it's uh, a song called "Raise the Fear," and um, we're very proud of it. Brilliant. Well, I must admit, you guys are very eclectic. It's such a pleasure to talk to you about, A, the way you ask questions and what you ask about and just the, the, the broadness of the discussion. Yeah, it's um, it's always a lot of fun. Um, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, just a reminder, the website to find you is davidmurrin.co.uk. That's M-U-R-R-I-N.co.uk. And I'll put links in the show notes to that and everything else. Um, just once again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And we hope to have you back on because we've definitely got to find out where we are in the cycle uh, in 2022. Well, I'd be happy to do that at the beginning of the year. There's another thing too, which um, I didn't mention, but having written the Now or Never Defence Review, which got into Boris's hands and briefly focused the Conservatives with his announcement on defence, they just ignored all of it. So I wrote a brief book called Red Lightning about how China wins World War III in 2025. And it has the geopolitical path we've got to this moment and my projection for the path to the moment when China surprises the world and sinks all the world's warships in 60 minutes. Wow. wow. Okay. Um, can we get hold of that report? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just you can go to the website. You can buy all my stuff directly on the site. Yeah. So it's literally, and it won't take you more than an hour to read. It's the opposite of breaking the code of history, which will knock you unconscious mm. if you drop it on your head. Yeah. But it will very break. quickly. It was designed to emotionally make people realise the balance of power is changing in front of our eyes. And then I created a solution with a design of warship that would counter it, which is, you know, I also write for Warships magazine on warship development. Just one of my little hobbies. So this it dovetails into something I've studied for a long time. There, there are people who apparently um, are employed, and I'd love to do this, um, to try to break security systems. You know, you've obviously got the, what are they called, white hat hackers who, who do yes. it. Yeah. But also for for security purposes you know finding ways and loopholes in in security systems it sounds like you have a similar similar mind because you've got to extrapolate what they're going to do with the technology into the future i i i find this fascinating personally well you know what it's very perceptive of you to say so because i do you know i've studied military history since i was 2 so not just about the history of how we went to war but the weapons of war I was, going to, I was going to ask, I was sorry to interrupt, David, I was going to ask what led to your interest in history. Was that driven by your parents? No, it was, it was almost like I came out stamped on my forehead. When my mother said, what do you want to read? It was a book of First World War tanks. And she was <laughs> and, 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 and I've Tanks often, are fun. 
Yeah, well, no, thanks. You know, and my so um, was exempt. So so, and I often thought about it because one side of my family are all in the military. We're part of the empire, of the empire soldiers. So maybe there's a like a genetic stamp, but. I quickly believe that if you want to understand human history, you have to understand warfare, not just, you know, how the great armies came together, how they were led, but the evolutions of weapons and tactics and how that energy changed. And I always thought it was like a dirty secret until after 9-11 when I thought, oh, maybe this understanding links with the domain of my profession. And it really has ever since, which is how arms races are conducted. And I've done some work for some of the organizations that protect us where they ask me questions and i give them answers mm. um in terms of how to overcome challenges and i think it's quite interesting when you picked it up because i think about how does the other i'm a real sun Tzu has an awful lot to offer and i'm one of his students but then it's a question of how do you overcome the challenges of another person's army and i when i um learn martial arts i learned very quickly i didn't see the body i saw the spaces that they left and those spaces were the places to attack. So on a kinetic personal level, I noticed I thought that way. And certainly as you picked up, I think that way in terms of how the balance of power works. So you're going to see the new Matrix film? Absolutely. That's <laughs> such a cool series of movies. It really is. Yeah. And it's a little bit like you could be offering the red pill or the green pill to most market participants right now. It's incredible how that's just become part of culture um, and it, I remember seeing it in 2000 and, or whatever around then when it came out for the first time. And it's 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 such it's one of those films that just has a massive impact on you. Well, it, it's interesting because I think there are two types of people. One that just well, there's three. One that is not interested. Tick. The other one is they're interested and they like the visual experience, but have no idea that they're looking at this complex Russian doll system of mindsets, constructs and and, you know, parallels with real life. And, you know, the first one is, do you wish to be conscious in, in the existence of your day to day way of life? Or do you wish to just carry on and be unconscious? And I think one of the greatest gifts being in the financial industry gave me is a mirror to try and constantly test my level of awareness for what I thought was happening versus was it happening? And, you know, you can never sit back on your laurels because you could have a great career and tomorrow you wipe out. So I think that 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 the, the parallel between the two is fascinating for all three of us in the same industry and the program and the film. Brilliant stuff. Um, are you, do you tweet at all or do you? Uh, was, yeah, interesting. <laughs> Talk about an old man getting into a new system. Um, so one of the interesting things, I've never been, I'm a product-based person. You know, I focused on how to make money, uh, focus on how to build things, and now I focus on how to analyze things and pass it on. But working without finding good marketing conduits is really difficult. And so, in the past six months, I've started to evolve my approach using different, you know, whether it's LinkedIn's probably biggest. There are always tweets sent out so you can follow me. If there's a new marination, you'll only get the first five lines until you subscribe. But there are alerts that come out on, you know, Facebook, Instagram. They come out on LinkedIn, so you can follow follow the work there. And probably we give away most on LinkedIn if you want to be a sneaky bastard and try mm. and avoid a small subscription. I'm just, sorry, I'm just going on to LinkedIn. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you really on LinkedIn, David? Are you, are you telling the truth? <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, it's um, as I say, it's been an absolute pleasure, pleasure and really fascinating. And um, I'm 
going to be buying one of your books certainly and uh, looking further at your method of analysis because it's it's certainly got me interested so um thank you once again and we'll hopefully see you very soon in 2022 and merry and, and merry christmas and merry christmas to you. you guys have been a pleasure to interact with so thank you for the privilege of uh, being able to share whatever i have with you thank you and happy thanks christmas david to you. And don't believe everything the government says about the pandemic fantastic <laughs> thank you david all the very best this podcast is for entertainment purposes only please do your own research or contact a professional advisor